Uh, we've been in this series on uh, relationships, and we've really been driving home just how thoroughly important, crucially significant it is to have a, a vital love relationship with the God who is love. Because the key to doing relationships well is, is love, and, and the key to an effective life is doing relationships well. But you can't give the love that you haven't actually received. And so if we're going to be givers, if we're going to be generous with love to people, whether it be in the family or in the workplace or wherever it is, we need to have actually re- received. You, you can't give away what you haven't received. And this ought to be kind of obvious to people. Uh, but this is what I do for a living. I say obvious things. And so I'm going to say the obvious here. If you don't have, you, you can't give. If uh, you're in debt, you're not a good giver. And so if you are operating in the red, so to speak, in your life, in your business, you don't go for a loan to someone else who's operating in the red. And most people in life are operating with a love deficit. So if you're needing assistance, if you're needing some financial help, you don't go to your poor uncle. You go to your rich uncle. And uh, so when it comes to doing relationships well and you know that you're operating on a love deficit and you need to have a love surplus, you don't go to people who are limited in their resources. You go to the one in particular who has the unlimited love resource so that we can love people the way that Jesus has loved us in the way that Jesus loves other people. And that is uh, what we're called to do as a family of priests revealing Christ. Which, by the way, that's, that is our identity. Let's, let's just say this together so maybe we can get this down. We are, out loud, we are a family of priests revealing Christ. And since that's who we are, what we do is we show the love of Christ to people. But how does he love? Well, he loves as, absolutely as a giver. And you go through the New Testament and all the different stories of Jesus, you, you learn this. But I love the way that the Apostle Paul puts it, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Now, I know that there, Paul says, love is, love is, love is. Actually, love does. But we know God is love. We know that Jesus Christ is the fullness of the revelation of God. We know that Jesus is love incarnate. And so I don't have any reservations at all saying, well, love is patient and Jesus is patient. Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of God. When love became flesh, when love demonstrated who love is and what love does, God sent us Jesus. So here's the summary of who Jesus is. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus is not rude. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. Jesus always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Now, when you start looking at the summary statement and you read through the New Testament, the thing that really ought to jump out and grab you is what a giver Jesus is. He's a giver. He's not a taker. And that's what we're going to be kind of talking about today in terms of just being givers like Jesus. Now, when I start thinking about givers and takers, I can't help but think about the the work of Adam Grant. Now, Adam Grant is this organizational psychologist. He's very, very popular right now. And he talks a lot about givers and takers in organizations and, and the matchers who are in between. 
Now, for Adam Grant, again, organizational psychologist, done all these studies and research, he says, in our country, you have about 19% of the people who are takers. And a taker is somebody who approaches people along the lines of, what can you do for me? Not, what can I do for you, but what can you do for me? Givers, on the other hand, predominantly relate to people along the lines of, what can I do for you, as opposed to, what can you do for me? Now, there's a mixture in everybody, but givers are more, what can I do for you, than what can you do for me? The matchers, and that's about 25% of the population are givers, according to his statistics and analysis. In the middle, you have matchers, and that's 56% of us. And the, the matchers, if you could not do that, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Um, the matchers are the ones who basically say, I'll do for you if you do for me. I'll give to you, but I want you to give to me. Let's keep it even. We're really big on justice here. And that's not necessarily a bad way to go through life. But here's what he learned uh, Adam Grant from about 38 different studies, research uh, universities and studies that he's done and ob- observing about 3,600 plus work units along the way, years and years of research analysis, here's what he's determined. The organizations that succeed the most, and he talks mainly about corporations, the organizations that succeed the most are the ones that are dominated by givers. When you're dealing with an organization that's dominated by givers, you will see in comparison to other organizations that they succeed in virtually every category according to every measure and metric. Organizations that are dominated by givers are more profitable. They have better employee retention, better customer satisfaction, uh, better management of, of resources and expenses. He says if you want your organization to succeed, you want it to be dominated by givers but here's the problem. Givers have a tendency of giving out, giving out because a person can only give so much. So here's what you want to do if you want your organization to succeed, whether it's a business, corporation, family, church, doesn't matter. If you want your organization to succeed, you need to do two things essentially. Number one, you, you've got to help the givers not to burn out. You need to help the givers to know that they need to receive because you can't just give indefinitely. You need to receive in order to give. And the second thing he says is, just eliminate, remove the takers. Um, they, they either need to get converted or they need to get lost. Uh, but you just want to get rid of the takers. And, and, here's, and here's why. Takers take. See, I told you, I said obvious things. Uh, you know, takers take. And they will take things not given to them and they'll elevate their position inappropriately because they take. And so if you, have a, if you have a taker or you have takers dominating, which they have a tendency to rise pretty quickly because they're all about self-advancement, if you have takers in an organization, the givers quit giving so much because they go, why would I put in 48 hours a week getting paid 40 when these takers who are getting paid 40 are working 32? I don't mind giving if I know that I'm sacrificing for the sake of the organization, but I'm not sacrificing for the sake of the takers. If I'm, I'm just pouring my energy into a black hole. And then if you're a matcher, you get really upset with the takers because that just doesn't seem fair, and you get really mad, and the overall the organization starts to spin downhill. And so the takers leave a, a, an organization that's been decimated in their wake because they're like, okay, they're like ticks. When the dog starts going down, if they can, they can jump onto another dog. And then where are you? But what happens when the takers take off, when they, when they are removed, or when they leave? Here's what happens. The givers dominate. Because all of a sudden the giver's not giving into a black hole. And then the takers start looking at the givers because it's just takers and givers left. And they go, well, that's not fair. 
Look at, look at them doing all these things. We need to catch up. We need to give more. And that's when an organization starts to flourish. That's when it really starts to take off. That's when it starts to really prosper. So if you're concerned about a family or, 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 an, or an organization or a business or whatever, if you want it to thrive, two things. You help the givers to receive appropriately so that they can give. And you elevate and celebrate the giver. Typically that happens with the taker being gone, but the whole point is to put the giver in the driver's seat, to be the real example and the real leader in the family, in the corporation, in the business. Now here's what's kind of interesting to me. All of that analysis and all of what Adam Grant is writing about here in the 21st century, the Apostle Paul essentially laid out the same thing about 2,000 years ago. And with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Here's what Paul writes. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, typically, when when I know that something needs to happen, and, and you're probably like this too, you just say, okay, it's time to do it. It's time to behave. It's time to make a behavior modification. It's time to just get in there and get her done and start doing But that's not where Paul starts. When Paul writes his epistles, he doesn't start with action. He doesn't start with do this, don't do that. He doesn't even begin with attitude. You need to change your attitude. You need to refocus. No. You know what he does? And you see this really clearly here in this particular segment of Philippians. He starts with you need to receive something. You need to go to to Jesus, the source, and receive what it is that you need to have so that you can give and do what it is that you need to give and do. You need to come to Christ and receive his love so that you can love other people the way that you've been loved. And that's why Paul starts out with if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Because it's in being with, with Christ, being bonded with him, that we're able to appropriately be in, in unity with other people, to actually be like-minded. It's in fellowship with the Holy Spirit that we actually have this koinonia, this fellowship, this common union with other people that we just grow into because this is a part of what God has lavished on us. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, not because you deserved it or you earned it along the way. God just, when you became a Christian, he just poured out his Holy Spirit into your life and you have fellowship with him. And you're comforted by his love. Why? Because he just dumped his love out on you. And we looked at this before, how He's just lavished his love out on you. And you have this tenderness and this compassion. Why? Because he's given you this tenderness and compassion that comes from being united with Christ, from being in the vine and receiving the love that comes from God through Jesus Christ, from being in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to communicate here is Paul at at no place ever says, here's what you need to do. You need to start spending resources that you don't have. You need to start spending resources in your life that you've not received. No, no, no. That's not where he starts. He's saying, I want you to be a giver, but it's not just that you need to be a giver. First, you need to receive. You need to have the encouragement that comes from being united with Christ. You need to have the comfort of his love. You need to be abiding in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You need to have this tenderness and this compassion that comes from your union with Christ and from the Holy Spirit in your life and from the love that flows into you because you're in the vine, because you're in Jesus Christ. 
Paul is saying, look, I don't want you to just be a giver and just give out of resources that are your own or that haven't been given to you. Here's what needs to happen. God did not come into your life and give you himself and give you all of these wonderful things and then say, I just want you to flow from you. No, no, no. You look at the source. You look at God, who he is and what he's done for you and what he's providing. And you let God and what he's giving to you to flow through you. That's how it works. He's the supplier of your relationship with other people. It's, it's very much along the lines of this letter that's kind of famous from Benjamin Franklin. You, you may have heard this before. I don't think I've said it. Benjamin Franklin in 1794, 84, writes a letter to this other Benjamin, Benjamin Webb. And, and here's what he wrote. I thought this was kind of interesting. He says, Dear Sir, your situation grieves me, and I send you herewith a banknote for 10 Louis d'Or. Now, uh, a Louis d'Or was a coin that you could use in Great Britain and in France. It was kind of the euro before the euro, okay? I do not pretend to give such a sum. It was a gold coin worth something. He says, I don't pretend to give such a sum. I only lend it to you. When you shall return to your country, you cannot fail of getting into some business that in time will enable you to pay all your debts. In that case, when you meet with another honest man in similar distress, you must pay me by lending the sum to him and joining him to discharge the debt by a like operation when he shall be able and shall meet with such another opportunity. I hope it may go through many hands before it meets with a knave that will stop its progress. This is a technique of mine for doing a good deal of good with a little money. I am not rich enough to afford much in good works, and so I am obliged to be cunning and make the most of a little. With best wishes for your future prosperity, I am, dear sir, your most obedient servant, Benjamin Franklin. So Franklin is saying, look, I gave this to you, you do this to somebody else. I've given to you, so you likewise, you take what I've given to you and you give it to somebody else. And this is what we now call paying it forward. The good thing about paying it forward is it's really enjoyable and the paying it forward doesn't actually originate with you. Now, you don't have to take what somebody else has given you by mercy and grace and pay it forward to somebody else. But it's entirely appropriate to do so, especially if they tell you, this is what I want you to do with what I've given to you. It's fun to take what's mercifully and graciously been given to you and mercifully and graciously give it it to somebody else. How many of you have ever done this, like in a, a line at Starbucks? Somebody ahead of you paid for you and then you paid it forward. You know what I'm talking about? Now, if you are the person that that the chain of paying it forward ended ended with, you're a taker. Okay, Uh, but maybe you are in a need. You know, I don't know. We all need to receive on occasion. But how much more incredible is it to know that when you pay forward love that's been given to you, as soon as you pay it forward, you get to do it again because the resources that are available to you by his love are limitless. You take your 10 gold coins and you pay them forward to somebody else and you don't have the gold coins anymore. You pay forward the love of God that he's poured out into your life to somebody else. And guess what? God immediately resupplies. That's the way it is. So Paul here in this passage does not start out by saying, just do these things, get her done. He starts out by pointing our attention to Jesus Christ, the ultimate giver, who is also the ultimate supplier. Because until you receive what it is that he supplies, you're not going to see, and I'm not going to see, what he wants happening in verses 2 and 3 and 4. That doesn't happen until you've received the supply. So you need to notice right off the bat, Paul's drawing your attention and my attention to Jesus, the ultimate giver, who is the ultimate supplier. 
But he doesn't just point to Jesus, who's the ultimate giver, who's the ultimate supplier. He also points to Jesus, the ultimate giver, who's also the ultimate example and the ultimate lead. This is why he goes on in verse 5 and says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Or other translations, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's pointing the attention to Jesus as the ultimate example and the ultimate lead in our lives. And so in the verses that follow, he starts talking about what Jesus did and who Jesus is and and how he's been exalted to the highest place and he's been given the name that's above every name, that every knee should bow before him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to the glory of God. He's talking about Jesus is the one that we celebrate above all others because when it comes to our organization, in fact, the organization of the universe, the giver is at the top and he's the one we follow and he's the one we celebrate. So what you see here in this passage, verses 1 through 5, is, is the verses in the middle being bookended by the ultimate giver being the supplier and the ultimate giver being the one upon whom we focus, the one that we follow, the one we celebrate. So he's your leader and he's the one that supplies what you need in order to follow his lead. When it comes to being a Christian and we're thinking about the love of God, we know that we are underneath him in the, in the flow chart, but he's also the one who's underneath us who supports us. I came across a young man. I thought this was really interesting. He showed me his back one day. And it was tattooed, the big tattoo, his whole back. Jesus has my back. And I thought, that's right. But Jesus also ought to have your front. Okay? He's, he's, okay. I'm, just, I'm just saying. Look, Jesus does support us. This is right. He upholds us. He, sustains, he gives and gives and gives and gives. But the point isn't that we get to go wherever we want and he's going to be, you know, keeping our back. No, Jesus leads us. And wherever it is that he leads us, he also has our back. He's the one who goes before us and he's the one who brings up the rear. He is our supreme leader who shows us where to go, but he's also the one who enables us to go down the path that we go down. And so when we're talking about our relational life, the reality is Jesus is the alpha and the omega of our relational life. He's the one who goes before and he's the one who brings up the rear. He takes the lead and shows us the way, but he also enables us to take the way. He's the everything in our relational life. And the reason I'm laying all of this out so very plainly is because you need to understand and I need to understand that when we're relating to one another, it's not primarily about my relationship with you and your relationship with me. In any relationship that I'm a part of, in any relationship that you're a part of, if you're a believer, it's primarily between you and Jesus. My relationship with my wife is actually primarily about my relationship with Jesus. And my relationship with Shelby is primarily about my relationship with Jesus. And my relationship with everybody on staff is primarily about my relationship with Jesus. And my relationship with the people down the street and the people I've just met, it's primarily about my relationship with Jesus because when it comes to my relational life, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one who goes before and he's the one who brings up the rear. He shows me where to go and he is the example to my life, but he's also the one upholding me and enabling me to follow in his example. So in a very real way, when I relate to people, the reality is it shouldn't be just me flowing from me. It is God flowing through me in the direction that he has determined. That's how it is for a believer. He's the Alpha and the Omega of your whole relational life. So we need to pause here and just very, very clearly understand that unless you have a living and vital relationship with Jesus Christ, your relational life is not going to be all that it needs to be. It will not. It cannot be. Now, Acknowledging this, we need to pause and ask ourselves this very simple question. Am I going to the ultimate giver and resupplying? 
on a regular basis, am I receiving the encouragement of being united with Christ? Am I being comforted by His love? Am I enjoying the fellowship with the Spirit? Am I receiving and knowing and walking in the tenderness and the compassion that I should have by being united with Christ and being in the vine, knowing His love and being in fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Am I resupplying with Him? And the other question is along the lines of, am I refocusing? Am I looking to Jesus on a regular basis as being my leader and my example? Am I following his lead? Is he the one, the ultimate giver in my life, is he the one that I am celebrating? On a regular basis, am I experiencing and acknowledging and focusing appropriately on Jesus as the ultimate giver? Receiving and following. That, by the way, is uh, what the devotional life is, is largely about. It's going to him and resupplying and refocusing. And some of you know what it's like to have a devotional life where you're actually thinking about this stuff and resupplying on a regular basis and refocusing on a regular basis and doing it especially in the mornings. It's, it makes a big difference in your life practically. Why does it make such a practical difference? Because the reality is he's the alpha and the omega of your relational life. I was talking to somebody, a young man that I, I used to know, respected him, still respect him very much, and he confided in me that he had a hard time with a devotional life. And this is very common to people. It's not just lay people. It's ministers and all the rest. In fact, if you are in professional ministry, you have a hard time doing devotions on a regular basis because you're always in the Word and you're preparing this lesson and this lesson. And, but there's something radically different about preparing a lesson or getting ready for the next teaching moment and actually devotionally spending time with Jesus. It's very different. And he said, I, you know, he confided, I, I'm not real consistent in this. And he also noticed that in his marriage there were peaks and valleys. Well, his wife also noticed that there were peaks and valleys, and she associated that with his devotional life, him resupplying and refocusing on a regular basis. And she told him one day, Bill, and that's not his name, but it was like, Bill, I like you a whole lot more when you spend time with Jesus and a whole lot less when you don't. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. And so, you know what the whole foundations thing is about? And this isn't, you can put that picture up there. The, the, the foundations that we do when we're in the Bible on a regular basis and you're in covenant groups and you may be doing daily bread or you just may be in the Word yourself and you've got another plan and you memorize Scripture, that's fine. But when we talk about devotional life, you know what we're talking about? It's the resupply from Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. And it's the refocus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and the verses that follow. That is why when we're talking about foundations or covenant groups or just a devotional life this isn't just a strategy that we do and we think is really helpful having a devotional life where you're actually resupplying from jesus and refocusing on jesus that is strategically absolutely necessary for being the family god wants us to be to being the priest that god has called us to be so as to real reveal christ in the way that he's called us to do it this is a strategic necessity and for me, it does work better in the mornings. Now, I've done the evening thing, but here's what happens for me when I do devotions in the evening. It's more like homework to finish, but that's not the point. And if you miss a day of devotional life, it's like, well, I'll, I'll make up for it on Saturday and read a whole bunch. And do, that's, You're still missing the point. It's not about covering the material and doing your homework. It's just about spending time with Him. And for me, I notice the difference when I resupply and refocus in the morning, because if I'm doing this before I go to bed, it doesn't really seem like resupply and refocus. It's 
helping me to fall asleep. That's very, very different. I love the, the prayer this one person prayed, and it's anonymous, apparently. I don't know who it is. They ought to get a pat on the back. But the, the prayer goes something like this. Dear God, so far today I've done really well. I haven't gossiped. I haven't been unkind. I haven't been surly or grumpy, nasty. And I'm really very happy about that. But in a few moments, I'm going to be rolling out of bed. And from here on out, I think I'm going to need a whole lot of help. Thank you, God. Amen. Now, that's kind of how I am. And I actually prayed that this morning because, uh, you know, uh, I've been thinking about this. And there are times where I think, well, I'm really busy. I don't have time to do much. But you know what? You can open the Bible for a second. You can say your prayer. You can get resupply and refocus. So when that's happening in your life, when there's the resupply and the refocus, when you're spending time with Jesus, when you're being encouraged by being united with him, when you're being comforted by his love, when there's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in your life, when you're knowing the tenderness and compassion because you're abiding in Christ, when all that's happening and you're on the same page with God and thereby you're on the same page with other believers who are on the same page with God, you have a, the same mind. You have the same love, and you, there's a, a unity, uh, a singleness of spirit and purpose. When all of that's happening, what does it actually look like? When the rubber meets the road, so to speak, how is it that we're actually behaving? Because we're on the same page with God and thereby with one another. Here's what happens, verses 3 through 4. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's kind of where the rubber meets the road, right there. Now, today we're not going to be able to fully explore those two verses, but we'll at least begin to look at them, and we'll wrap this up next week. And this is very, very rich material. In fact, the, the, first, the, the two major words in verse 3 are really rich. They're so rich you can hardly translate them. And that means they bear some reflection. And even the order of the words is really important because the first word there, selfish ambition, is spelling out more of the behavior, what happens when your heart goes loveless. And then the second word, vain conceit, is talking more about the motivation or the root, uh, the behavioral motive as to why it is that we do act with selfish ambition. So let's just go ahead and get into this. We're just going to have time to talk about selfish ambition and then we're going to be done uh, for this morning. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. What does that word mean? Well, it's, a, it's one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word arethian, and it, it literally could be translated hyperfighting. Hyperfighting. Some translations say a spirit of rivalry, and I think that's probably the best translation. What we're talking about here with arethian, the spirit of rivalry, is this, this spirit where you live to fight. Now, everybody has to fight to survive. It's one thing to fight to live, but it's another thing to live to fight. And, and it is this spirit where you, you don't have truth and reason actually guiding your relational life. It's more where your needs are the bottom line. It's where prejudice governs the way you relate to people. Let, let's think about this, okay? Let's process this together. It, how do you do your relational life? When it gets right down to it, there are people who will view the truth through their needs or there are those who will view the needs in light of the truth. These are two different ways of doing things. If on the one hand you 
understand your needs through the truth. You can have a really good conversation with somebody. It can be very healthy. You can say, well, you have your needs. I have my needs. But what is the truth? And then you have a dialogue. Let's reason together. Let's think about this together. And that's one way to do it. There's another way of going through life, and that is where you are understanding the truth through your needs. Where the, not the truth, but your needs are the bottom line in your life. And when your needs are the bottom line in your life, you're a hyper fighter. You've you got a problem with selfish ambition. And you may go about it really, really nicely, but you're still living in your own little world. Just because you're a hyper fighter doesn't mean that you're mean or put offish. Just because you're a hyper fighter, just because you have a problem with Arethian and you're selfishly ambitious and needs are your bottom line, that doesn't mean that you don't kind of get along with people. Here's what I mean. Uh, Y'all have seen Star Wars, I'm hoping. We had like in the first service like five people. Uh, So it's really discouraging. So I couldn't wait to get here. Um, You know the the people who are very selfishly ambitious and put offish, like Darth Sidious, okay? He's bad. Darth Vader, they're bad, obviously bad. But then you have people who are very selfishly ambitious that get along with everybody, and they can even be the mayor of the city, like Lando Calrissian in... In, you know, episode five, you know, he's got the big Billy D. Williams smile and he's got the hair looks so good. And, and then, you know, when uh, Han Solo shows up, hey, Han, buddy, and then he turns him into Darth Vader, two-faced backstabber. Okay, still, still selfish ambition, self-interest, I'm getting paid, that kind of thing. But you're still in your own world. You can be really nice and get along and kind of get ahead, but you're still in your own world. It's still selfish ambition. It's still Arethian. You're still self-interested. Your needs are your bottom line. It's where my needs are true because they're my needs. I'm right because it's me. My group is right because it's my group. And the truth isn't governing, governing your thoughts or your, your relationships. It's just your needs. And people don't even understand that they're looking at the truth through their needs because when you're self-interested and you're... You're suffering from Arethian. You don't even know. That's just how you are. Um, I, I saw the trailer to the movie that came out Thursday night. It came out this last weekend. I, Tanya. Now, I, I read enough reviews to go, I'm probably not going to see that anytime soon. Maybe I'll wait for the DVD so I can fast forward through a few things or something. But the trailer looked really interesting. Here's how it starts in the trailer. It's all about Tanya Harding and, you know, all that stuff that happened with Nancy Kerrigan and the leg getting beat in and who did what and very dysfunctional. The whole trailer starts out with Tanya Harding saying, people say, you know, Tanya, tell us the truth. And then the character continues, there is no, everybody has their own truth. There is no truth. And then the very next thing, it's spoken like somebody who is, uh, you know, very self-absorbed in the world of a bunch of messed up, self-absorbed people where it's us versus them and the spirit of rivalry. And and as soon as she says all of this, here's what pops up on the screen. Let me show the next picture. Based on the insane true story. So I was like, okay, now, is it a true story or is it not a true story? And you kind of get the feeling that the people who are doing the movie aren't buying what Tanya Harding's selling because we know people you know, that just seem really, really messed up. And we know it's, they're just looking at life through their own needs. And they're rejecting truth. And they're hurting other people. And, and, you, and it's not just Tanya Harding. You start looking at the mom. If you've ever watched documentaries and all the rest, you know, the mom is really in our world. You know, I'm telling the truth. And they're all liars. And, and you know, the evil's done to everybody. And it just gets really messed up. 
What the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage is borne out in other passages in the Scripture. If you are selfishly ambitious, if your needs are your bottom line, you actually end up rejecting the truth. And when you reject the truth and you're living in your own little world, you're going to be doing evil to other people. This is not just connected here in this particular passage. You look at other passages like in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 2, verse 8, all these connections are made. Paul there says this. He writes, but for those who are self-seeking, same word, selfish ambition, for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. In that same passage, just two verses earlier in verse 6, the Apostle Paul is talking about that day that will come when the wrath of God, when the judgment of God will be revealed. And here's what he says in verse 6. He says, God will render each one according to his works. The punishment fits the crime. The punishment is inherent with the crime. And so when you're dealing with the Rethian, when you're dealing with the spirit of rivalry, what is built into that? Wrath and anger. It just all goes together. Now, I'm not picking on anyone in particular. I don't know Tanya Harding. I don't know her mom. I've just seen you know, some interviews that just get a little bit weird, and I don't know who knew what and did what to who with regards to Nancy Kerrigan and all that stuff. But when I see her story and when I learn about her mom, I actually kind of feel for, for, for Tanya, and I feel for her mom, and I feel for people like this because I know, but for the grace of God, I could go in the same direction because the reality is in me and actually in you, there is this tendency to make your needs the bottom line. And when you do that, you end up rejecting the truth and you end up doing evil to other people. The only thing that keeps me from having that Arethian come out of the shadows and grab me by the neck and choke the life out of me is being encouraged by being united with Christ, being comforted by His love, having fellowship with the Spirit, knowing the tenderness and the compassion that comes from Christ. This is, there are different scales. I mean, everybody's a little bit somewhere else on the spectrum, but this is something that everybody deals with. And this problem of selfish ambition and the spirit of rivalry, it does seem like it's getting worse and worse and worse. Right? I mean, truth seems to kind of be going out the window. And there's a whole lot of us versus them. And when I go to the media, it seems like I'm noticing less and less of just reporting the facts and more and more opinion pieces and shouting matches and making things personal and taking things personal. You know what that is? That is Arethian unleashed. That's the spirit of rivalry that winds up rejecting truth and doing evil in a country that's becoming more and more takers. And the problem is, as we become more and more takers, well, the ticks kill the dog. And even the ticks die. Is there a hope of turning things around? What is the antidote to Arethian? What is the antidote to the selfish ambition? Is there a hope? Is it, can it be really overcome? Yeah, here's how it's overcome. Sacrificial love. Jesus Christ jumped on to the dog filled with ticks at a time when this world was absolutely out of control. Truth. What is truth, says Pilate? There is no truth. And he wasn't Tanya Harding. He was a, a, a leader, and that was where the world was. People doing radical evil to one another. Why? Because it's my needs versus your needs, us versus them. And he jumped right onto the back of that dog and turned things around and brought healing and restoration. How? How did he do it? Because Christ, unlike anyone else, 
pure giver. So now how do we do what Christ did? Well, we abide in Christ. It's just not that complicated. But we're not going to do anything along the lines of what Jesus Christ did in terms of bringing healing to a world going crazy unless we understand and live as if in our relationships it's not between me and you or us and them. It's between me and him. The sacrificial love of Jesus doesn't enter into the picture until we recognize that ultimately he's the Alpha and the Omega to all of our relational lives. I love the way that Kent Keith put it. We'll close on this. He said this years ago, so I'm kind of paraphrasing. He said, people are illogical, insane, selfish, unreasonable. Love them anyway. When you're kind to people, there are many who are going to judge your motives as false and ulterior. Be kind to people anyway. When you do good, the good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. When you're honest and vulnerable, people will take advantage of you. Be honest and vulnerable anyway. When you succeed, you're going to win some false friends and gain some true enemies. Succeed anyway. What takes you years and years and years to build in this life, others can destroy overnight. You build anyway. You be kind to other people. You you be helpful to people because people need help, but even when they do need help and you help them, they're going to reject your help and maybe even ultimately reject you. You help people anyway. In the final analysis, when it comes down to your life, it's between you and the Lord. It never was just between you and them anyway. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, when we start thinking about doing relationships well, I guess naturally in our society we think about how can I get more out of the people around us? And as Christians, the question, especially as a family of priests called to reveal Christ, our question is, how can I give more to the people around? How can I love better? Not so as to get love, but how can I relate so as to give it? An entirely different approach toward life, and it's unnatural. So, Lord, as your people, help us to recognize that everything we do with other people is ultimately between you and us. And that's why Paul starts the way that he does. Get resupplied. Find the encouragement of being united with Christ, the comfort of his love, the fellowship of the Spirit. Because the way we relate to others comes down ultimately to are we receiving from you what we should have and are we ultimately looking to you? Are, are we focused on having the mind that is in you and us? Is our attitude being what yours is? Are we exalting you and celebrating you, the ultimate giver? Lord, I don't really know what all to ask at this point other than I just pray that you will help us to relate to you in such a way that your divine limitless love will break into this world and our lives gone crazy, that we would be the light of the world, the salt of the world that you've made us to be. We are, in some respects, very much the hope of the world around us as this family of priests revealing you. 
But we don't get arrogant about that because we recognize if we're the hope of the world, you're the only hope for us. So, Lord, I guess our confession this morning is uh, you're our only hope. Help us to see things as they, as they are. We need you in practice to be the alpha and the omega of our marriages, the alpha and the omega of our relationships in this church, the alpha and the omega of our relationships to others around us. And Lord, forgive us for our arrogance of thinking that we could live meaningful lives apart from you. Lord, forgive us our arrogance. Help us to depend on you in a practical way, day by day, that you would be well pleased and exalted as you flow through us to other people, bringing healing to this world that desperately needs it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.